This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Up next, one of my favorite stories, one of the most moving stories I think you'll hear. It's a book called No Surrender, A Father, a Son, and an Extraordinary Act of Heroism, that continues to live on to today. Joining us is Chris Edmonds. Lee, thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you. Chris, let's talk a little bit about your dad before we talk about your journey. Give us a flavor for his life, because my goodness, he was in the end a depression boy, a great depression boy. He was. He was born in uh, 1919 uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, so just there in the hills of East Tennessee, he grew up uh, in, a, in a community called South Knoxville. Uh, his father, my grandfather, uh, T.C., was a uh, professional paper hanger and a hard worker. Uh, he, my grandmother and, uh, and my dad's mom, Jen, Jenny, was uh, a homemaker. And had they had four boys plus dad. That made five. And dad came along late. So he was born probably 10 years after the, uh, the last boy. Um, but she died uh, when, when uh, he was three years old. And uh, Dad went to live with uh, his Aunt Sally. And so, um, you know, he, he had tragedy from the very beginning of, of his life, but yet he endured that. Uh, had a loving aunt who became his mom, basically, and, and helped him. Uh, lived, lived through the Depression. At age 10, the Depression hit. And uh, he suffered. Uh, the family, you know, suffered some starvation and some, some hard times during that time, like all families did. And dad, dad was a survivor, like, like those in our greatest generation. They learned how to adapt and survive. Uh, but yet, he, I, I say, dad didn't have a lot of didn't have a lot of things, but he had the right things, and um, he he had the right things when it came to his uh, his family. Uh, my uh, my family's faith goes way back, uh, goes back to to Quakers. We they came out of the Quaker faith, um, uh, and so. So those values endured. Uh, my uh, grandfather and grandmother were uh, evangelical Methodist and 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 loved the Lord. And so uh, that that was translated to Dad, and he made his own personal decision as a middle school kid uh, at Vestal United Methodist Church there in South Knoxville, and and uh, he recorded that in the back of his Bible, uh, his salvation experience, and and the scriptures that that led him to that decision. But he was forever changed, and. Uh, he was pretty simple about his faith. He said, there is a God. He is good. Therefore, I must be good as well. I must be good to It doesn't others. get simpler than that. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. My grandparents who came here with nothing always told me in the beginning they didn't have much money, but they were never poor. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. And uh, they always reminded us of that, that poverty, there are a lot of rich people who are poor. Yeah. Uh, they have terrible lives. Well, the, the, that's, that's dad's life as well and, and, and ours. Now, he did uh, participate in junior ROTC in high school. They had a very strong program. They actually had a firing range on the top floor of the high school. Now, can you imagine that in today's <laughs> day and age? No, no. <laughs> he, so he learned to he learned to uh, to handle and, and shoot a rifle up there. But uh, and he 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 evidently loved that part of his experience in high school. But in 1941, I think he felt the the, the call of duty to go, and um, he he knew the winds of war were were blowing hard towards America. Uh, he heard a speech by President Roosevelt, uh, who came to dedicate the Smoky Ma- Great Smoky Mountain National Park in 1940, September of 1940, 
I think it stirred his heart. Um, and, and he, he joined the army, um, left his, his high school sweetheart and went and joined the army. He later married her while he was in service there. It was my mom. It wasn't my mom. It was, uh, his, his high school sweetheart's first marriage. Um, and, he he started training uh, as a private, and within two before two years had passed, he was a master sergeant at Fort Jackson. Now that's incredible. Um, at the time, he was the youngest master sergeant appointed uh, in the U.S. Army. Uh, he was age twenty-two. Um, that's so, a pro- that makes him a prodigy as a soldier, actually. Oh, a- absolutely. He obviously he uh, he had great leadership skills. He he uh, he cared about people, but he also demanded. Uh, uh, you know, he, he was tough on him, uh, but he was tough in a in a fair way and in a kind way. Uh, he also didn't expect any of his soldiers to do anything he wouldn't choose to do. I mean, he would always march with them. Uh, he he would, whatever they had to do, if they had to sleep out in the mud, he's sleeping with them. He taught them to love love their rifles and uh, to, to learn how to survive. Um, and so his experience at Fort Jackson was, was, uh, uh, was phenomenal. And uh, he became master sergeant and was assigned to the 106th Infantry when that that new unit was formed, uh, kind of in 1943 to try to help uh, support the uh, the effort in Europe. 2009, 2008, about that time, your daughter is interested in knowing what your dad did in World War II. He never really talked to you about it or to anybody about it. And by the way, that was the case of the Greatest Generation until a couple of writers started to really dig in and, and get some of them to talk. And that's how we got Band of Brothers, ultimately. Well, my daughters, uh, Kristen and Lauren, were attending Maryville College, and uh, they're going to be educators, which they are. I'm very proud of them. Um, and and they, uh, they were in a history class. The professor gave the whole class. He, he grouped them up in different groups. And uh, Lauren's particular group was given the same assignment as the whole class was do a history project. Pick a family member who's had some connection with, with history, and uh, we, we want you to do a presentation. You can use a variety of different tools for that. They chose Dad because he was a POW in World War II, and they chose to do a video. Um, and so she came home very excited about it. She said, Dad, the professor gave us permission, said we were supposed to interview someone who's living, but you know, Dad passed away the year I was born, and, and we get to do that. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable story. No surrender, a father, a son, and an extraordinary act of heroism that continues to live on today. And folks, if you have a soldier's story, and you're going to hear this story unfold, because in the end, well, Chris's dad didn't share his World War II story with him, and he ended up, well, in a path of discovery uh, only about a decade ago. And so if you have stories like this in your family, send them our way. Uh, particularly the World War II stories. Uh, that generation is dying off. Uh, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. We continue with Pastor Chris Edmonds, the book No Surrender, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. The book is No Surrender. The guest, Chris Edmonds. Now let's talk about what we had just noted before. It's 2009, 2008, about that time. Your daughter is interested in knowing what your dad did in World War II. He never really talked to you about it or to anybody about it. And by the way, that was the case of the greatest generation until a couple of writers started to really dig in and get some of them to talk. And that's how we got Band of Brothers, ultimately. But that was also the silent generation in terms of talking about their experience. Talk about your daughter's project and how it led you to a man named Lester Tanner in New York City. They were in a history class. The professor gave the whole class do a history project, pick a family member who's had some connection with, with history, and I, we, we want you to do a presentation. You can use a variety of different tools for that. They chose Dad because he was a POW in World War II. And so she came home very excited about it. She said, Dad, the professor gave us permission, said we were supposed to interview someone who's living, but you know, Dad passed away the year I was born, and, and we get to do that. And I said, well, that's exciting. I'm excited for you. So let's, uh, let's get his journals. He kept two journals when he was in the, as a POW uh, in World War II, journals that he kept tucked away, that he never talked about, never brought them out, never showed them to anybody. When you'd say, Dad, what, what happened over there? Son, I'd rather not say. And then you'd press him on it. When I was in college, I was pressing, on, pressing him on it because I was reading the diaries. And I said, Dad, I want to know. And he goes, son, there's some things just too difficult to talk about. He said, I'll just tell you this. The Germans humiliated us. And, and that's all he would say. And, and, and he was a person who liked to talk. And so she, gets, she does the, the, the project. And uh, they, they put a video together. Just use pictures off the Internet. But they, the narration are words from his diary. And when I watched that, it was like God just, he's, God said, uh, you got to go find out. There was, is, I felt a sense of calling just like I did when I was called to the ministry. Uh, it was a burden. It, it was a passion. Um, and so one night, I just typed in his rank and his name, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds. And the first link that appeared was a New York Times article. And Dad's name was highlighted in that article. I was, I was stunned. I said, what, what's that? And then I looked at the title. The title of the art, article was Richard Nixon's Search for a New York Home. It's a, an article written by the editor of the New York Times in 2008, looking back to 1980. And uh, the, the whole um, desire for the president, uh, who had stepped down from the presidency at the time, was wanting to move to New York, try to rehabilitate his, his career and... and, and no one wanted him as their neighbor. They all blackballed him and said, no, he's not moving in beside me, except for a gentleman by the name of Lester Tanner, uh, who was a prominent New York attorney. Um, he lived in a very prominent section of New York. His, his neighbors were Schlesinger and Rockefeller. So you can see that he lived in a pretty nice neighborhood. And um, he reached out to the president. Long story short is in that article, um, the editor pressed uh, Lester on, on his, uh, his life before he met the president. And Lester j- just said, well, I was in World War II, and I was, a, I was a staff sergeant in the 106th Infantry, and I was captured in the Battle of the Bulge. So they talked about that. And he said, Lester said, right in the middle of it, he said, this has been on my heart for years, but never really said anything to my family. He said, it just, I just blurted out, said, had it not been for the bravery of my Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, uh, who saved my life, I wouldn't have met the president. I'm stunned when I'm reading that. And, uh, 
And so the the passion to to discover dad's uh, World War II experience turns into even a greater journey and mission because I've got to meet Lester now. What is Lester talking about? Dad never mentioned this. He never shared it with my mom, never shared it with us. It's not in his diary in in clear verse. It's it's there's cryptic notes in dad's diary that I know now are clues to what I've discovered. Um, for instance, he's got a little dash in his diary that says dogs. I now know what that, it's a, it's a horrible experience, but I know what that means now. He's also got a dash that says Jewish friends moved out. Uh, that happened in the first POW camp he was in where they segregated the Jewish men. Uh, and ultimately, many of those men were sent to their death uh, in, a, uh, in a concentration camp where they, they were forced labor, really, really killed them. Um, and then uh, he's also got a little dash mark that says, before the commander. And that's the moment where he defied the Nazi commander um, to protect his Jewish brothers. And uh, I had no idea what that meant until this journey. So these were cues for himself, but he didn't want anybody else they to were, do They were mental markers, I believe. Yeah. Yes. So let's take the story now. He's deployed to what will be the roughest battle of them all, the Battle of the Bulge. Talk about that. Yes, it's the largest and bloodiest battle of World War II, uh, totally taken by surprise, unexpected. As a matter of fact, even in his diary, uh, he says, uh, we were sent to a a place that was uh, going to be a picnic. You know, it was just a a resting area. Uh, They got there on December 10th of 1944, Six days later, the war came to them. Uh, I mean, Hitler uh, threw all that he had at the American forces, and the American forces were were spread very thinly along that front. They were just inside the German border. The Germans hit them with 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 everything they had. In Dad's diary, he writes, uh, "You know, rifles are no good against tanks and eighty-eight fire." But they fought valiantly. They held them off, and they actually delayed the uh, uh, the success of the Germans enough to where the the Americans ultimately won that battle um, about 30 days later. But, in, but Dad was captured along with the rest of his men uh, three days into that battle. They, they had two enemies. Uh, obviously, they had, the Germans were their enemies, but the weather was their enemy as well. And they knew that going in. Um, and many of the, of the men that were serving with Dad, he had trained, but they were the youngest uh, group of soldiers and the greenest group of soldiers. But yet they were also very, very bright. So Henry Kissinger was a part of that group. Uh, Bob Dole was a part of that group. So uh, these, these were some of the brightest and the best. Lester Tanner was a part of that group. The moment that Dad was captured, uh, there was a German sergeant who, was, who got in an argument with a German lieutenant because the, the, the sergeant wanted to, to just shoot all the, all the prisoners and be done with it and move on. And the lieutenant stood his ground, and, and ultimately it was about a 10-minute argument, and the lieutenant ultimately gave him final orders to, to march the prisoners back with the others. We're not shooting them. And then uh, they were marched several days without food and water. Um, many of them had had their boots stolen from them, from the, from the Germans taken away. Their, their overcoats, a lot of them had their overcoats taken from the German soldiers who captured them. So they were, they were marching in... Uh, sub-zero weather, uh, many of them without shoes. And, and Skip Friedman, one of my POW friends who, who's passed away now, but a great friend that I met through this journey, he said, if you didn't march, you didn't last. He said, we could hear shots in the back. And said, we tried to help one another to, to make sure that we marched. 
And um, that first night in the playoff churchyard, they surrounded them. They'd sleep outside on the ground, and they surrounded them with uh, machine guns and, and obviously with, with the dogs. And so they were marched to, that, uh, to, to a train station, put on trains, taken deeper into Germany, another four or five days on trains without food and water, standing room only, uh, the same cattle cars that they were using to take Jewish people to their death. Uh, that's where they were at, and uh, they ultimately arrived uh, after a, a, a terrifying bombing where they were they were marshaled over onto a sidecar in Limburg Crane Yard, and that morning the, the weather had cleared, and so the British came over to bomb that train yard, and the POWs were also mixed in with armament, German armament, in unmarked boxcars, and uh, uh, the the British did a great job of blowing that place up, and they also killed quite a few uh, American soldiers as a result of that. And so they had to hear all those bombs falling uh, toward them with no place to run, and uh, that was probably one of the most frightening experiences that, that the men uh, endured during their time. Every one of the POWs I've met with, they almost make a beeline to that moment and talk about the terror that they had. But yet in that boxcar, the dad's boxcar, I've met a, a POW who was there, Hank Friedman. He, he said, um, we all were trying to kill each other to get out of that boxcar. He said, we all wanted to escape and, and get away from those bombs because we could hear everyone of them coming right at us. He said, it was pandemonium. It was crazy, terrifying. He said, but then I hear the voice with a southern drawl rise up above the clamor on the other side of the boxcar. He said, it's your father. He said, it's my sergeant. He says, boys, if you've ever prayed to God, you need to pray. Pray, boys, pray. Our God will save us. He said, our boxcar got quiet, and we began to pray. He said, I'd never really prayed that much before. He said, I grew up Jewish. I was a Jewish kid. He said, I, you know, I knew God, but I, we all prayed. He said, and then your father voiced a prayer above the silence. He said, uh, your father's faith was the first seed of faith that I ever experienced as a Jewish kid. He said, which uh, God brought to uh, fruition when I was 80 years old at Shadowbrook Baptist Church. He said, I came to, to my Messiah. And he said, that's what, what uh, won the day. Well, when we come back, we'll continue the story of Chris Edmonds and his remarkable father, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds. The book is No Surrender. Go to Amazon.com and get it. Heck, go to a bookstore and buy a book. It's a story about heroism, faith, sacrifice the things in short supply in this country today this is our american stories more after these messages And we continue here with Our American Stories. The book is No Surrender, A Father, a Son, and an Extraordinary Act of Heroism that Continues to Live On Today. Chris Edmonds, talk about the dogs. Uh, the dogs happened, the second camp that Dad was transferred to um, after, after Bad Orb, uh, they marched them in, and these are all non-commissioned officers now, uh, and Dad is the highest-ranking soldier among them. And so he's their leader. But they marched them in on, on uh, January 25th and make them stand out in the cold all day long to intimidate them with, with, with the guard dogs. And, and uh, they rifle butt several of them uh, just to, if they're not standing up straight. Or whatever. They're just very cruel to them. But they wanted to intimidate them and let them know who was in charge. Um, almost at the end of the day when, when it's getting uh, starting to turn dark, 
they march a young Russian soldier out in front of the Americans. And uh, they, uh, they tell the young Russian he's free to go. And um, they open the gates. And the, the Russian hesitates, obviously. Now, that's, this young Russian uh, is, is gaunt. He's, he's, he's emaciated. He's been starved to death, um, worked to death. But yet there's the sense of freedom. And so he begins to start walking towards the, the, the gate. And uh, they goad him some more, and he starts running towards the gate. And just as he gets to the gate, they, the commandant signals with his head, and they close the gates, and they release the dogs. And the Americans are forced to watch um, that young Russian soldier being mauled to death um, and, and ultimately murdered by the dogs. And every time they turn around, the, the, you know, it's, it's a gruesome scene, and, and the, the Americans obviously don't, don't want to watch it, but they're, uh, the guards are, are smashing them with the rifles, forcing them to watch. And then the commandant comes to my father, and he said, uh, if you or any of your men disobey us, this will happen to you. And so it was ext- just blatant intimidation and, and, uh, and, and brutality. Um, and so that's how their experience at Ziegenhain started. Um, and they, they finally take them to barracks. They get them settled in into the barracks. And every morning there's, they have to fall out for a head count. Sometimes they do it two or three times a day, but particularly every morning. Uh, they fall out as usual on the 26th. And then on the night of the 26th, um, they uh, send orders to my father and they announce over the American loudspeakers uh, that the following morning they want only the, the Jewish men to fall out, just the Jews. Anyone who disobeys this order will be shot. And so that sets the stage for, for, uh, for what ultimately uh, is, is dad's uh, act of incredible defiance to say, uh, we're not doing that. Tomorrow morning, we're all falling out. So, so they issue those orders, and, and Lester Tanner, who says, I'm in your father's barracks, and said as immediately as he got those, those orders, he turned to all of us in, in our barracks. So there's probably 250 of us in that, in that barracks. There's, there's five other American barracks. He turns to us and he says, men, we're not doing that. Tomorrow morning, we all fall out. Send orders to the other barracks leaders. That's what we're going to do. And then he calls a meeting with the, with the barracks leaders. And they, they meet, they come to his barracks, they meet together. Um, and he, he issues the orders again. And he says, men, we, we've got to stand together. Uh, he said, uh, we, we've got to have every man out there. Even if, He said, I know there's some men who, who do physically it's going to be hard for them to get out there because they've already been 40 days into starvation at this point. Um, and so uh, he gets commitment from, from all the barracks leaders and, and goes, they go back and they get commitment for, for all the men. All the men say, yes, we're going to go stand together, uh, which is absolutely amazing. You know, any one of those men uh, could have said, I'm not going out there. Um, well, the next day, it's, it's bright and early, um, you know, it's, it's dawn, and uh, all the Americans are standing out there together as one, and the commandant uh, comes out. But then uh, it's not the commandant who comes over to my father. It's a major, a Major Ziegman. Now, Major Ziegman had been in the first camp they were in and had taken Jews away from that camp, um, and he's there to get the Jewish men. Uh, he's... he's um, from high command in Berlin. He's two people away from Hitler. He's the eyes and ears of Hitler in the POW camps. Anytime a protecting power shows up, uh, another nation to, to check on other POWs of a different nation, they're, they're called the protecting powers, um, guess who else shows up at those POW camps? Major Ziegman. He reports to General Yodel. 
Um, and uh, he's there for one reason, one reason only. And when he steps out of the of the headquarters and sees all of the Americans, he is furious. Uh, he knows that his his orders have been disobeyed, and so he storms over to my father, and that that sets the stage for for Dad's defiance. And what happens next? Well, the major storms over to Dad, and he gets up into his face, and he uh, he said, uh, "Were my orders not clear? Did you not understand?" And uh, my dad said, uh, Major, all that's required by the Geneva Convention is name, rank, and serial number. And the, and the Major interrupts him and says, Listen, Sergeant, you don't understand. My orders were just for the Jews. Only the Jews. You can't all be Jews. And uh, my father said, We are all Jews here. <laughs> you can imagine what did the Major. The Major turned blood red and became vicious and and furious he pulled his gun he pressed it hard in my dad's forehead and he screamed sergeant one last chance you will order the jewish men to step forward or i will shoot you right now lester said uh your dad was so brave i he said i, I had no idea what he was going to do or what he was going to say but he said uh, i just i couldn't believe it he said time froze we didn't know what was going to He said, we were all scared to death. We didn't know what was going to happen, but we all stayed together. He said, your father was unwavering. That made us brave. We all stood together. And um, he said, it seemed like an eternity. He said, all that we had suffered, all that we'd gone through at that point uh, was horrible, but yet this one moment was terrifying. But he said, your father was so brave. He said, and finally, he said, what seemed like an eternity, uh, your father spoke. And he said, and your father spoke truth. Um, he said, Major, you can shoot me, but you'll have to kill all of us because we know who you are. And you'll stand for war crimes when we win this war. And you will pay. <laughs> Lester said, I couldn't believe your father. How strong he was and how, I mean, he, he, he spoke the truth. And he said, the Major turned white immediately turned white, and his arm began to shake. He said, I don't think anyone had ever stood up to him. And uh, he said, I really believe the truth sunk into uh, that old major's heart and his soul. Um, he said, and then almost as immediately as he'd pulled the gun, he he uh, he pulled the gun to his side, stuck it in his holster, and he swung around and marched back to his headquarters. And he said, and we never saw Major Ziegman again. He never came to ask for the Jews again, although we thought he might. Um, he said, and, and, and we went back to the barracks and really cheered your father. He said, we knew we had a leader. We knew we had someone that loved us. Let me read from the book, because this is Lester Tanner, and again, a very prominent New York attorney. Yes. But this burns in his memory forever. And this is what he told you. Quote, we went back to the barracks, and my goodness, we really cheered Rodney. We never wavered. What he did made us all brave. He was also, well, he was a man who made us very proud and happy. But Roddy didn't want to talk about it after. He was facing the enemy at the risk of his life, and what he did was to save us. He thought only of his men. That takes courage. But that was Roddy. We all came to admire and respect him that day, so that when Roddy Roddy said something while we were prisoners, well, we just did it. When we come back, more of this remarkable story of courage, of heroism, of standing up for your men no matter what, 
and your fellow soldiers. No Surrender is the book, a father, a son, and an extraordinary act of heroism that continues to live on today. If you're a teacher, get this book, bring it into your school, have everyone read it. Courage, well, it's the animating characteristic that makes all of the virtues and values possible. That's what Aristotle said, and it's true. No Surrender is the book, Chris Edmonds, the story of his father, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, a man who did not want to take credit for any of this. More of this remarkable story here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories. We're talking to Chris Edmonds, his book, No Surrender. Get it at Amazon. Heck, get the audio version, because what a great way to to listen to a book in the end. It's sometimes better than reading it, because you're going to hear the son's voice, the son's passion. By the way, what a great thing to do for your family, to make sure you know your family's history. And here in Our American Stories, we spend a lot of time talking about our own country's history, because our country is filled with beautiful and great stories and people like this. Let's talk about the time as well, because Auschwitz, well, the first time that folks get to know about it is right around this time. And it horrified, well, it horrified the world. Oh, it did. In January 27, 1945, they liberated Auschwitz. That is also the same day that Dad stood up for his men. Um, and so it's, it's, it's amazing uh, to, to, to think that Dad did that. Uh, stood up for his Jewish men when liberators were liberating the camp, um, and 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 really, not really for the first time, but really for um, it, it was a pivotal moment where I think the world really recognized the brutality and and the horrible uh, murders that were taking place against the Jewish people for the first time, even though it had been reported somewhat even before that, um, and what you, you know. It, Anti-Semitism is 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 just being um, uh, ugly and and hateful and and demeaning to uh, to the Jewish people. You know, it's it's hate, hatred of the Jews. Um, it was going on back then, but it, it didn't find a place in Dad's heart. And I I don't know if Dad had, had ever met a Jewish person until he'd got into the service. But to Dad, people were people. People were God's creation, and and everyone uh, was made equally in the sight of God, and everybody mattered. And so it didn't matter what your faith was or what your beliefs were, what background you came from. I think that was one of the strengths of our, of our, our U.S. Army. Uh, there was such a diversity. Um, there, were, there were boys from every nook and cranny of this country who were serving, and men and women in this country who were giving their all, even back here in the States, for the war effort. We all pulled together. I don't know why we can't do that today. I don't know why we can't. Uh, there's an incredible diversity in our country, but you imagine that it's, it's the— it's the strength of diversity being woven together in a unity of spirit uh, that really makes our uh, um, greatness. And, well, and when, makes you, when our your dad, great. when your dad under command, he insisted that there be Catholic services, uh, Protestant services, Jewish services, and I can only imagine he was respectful of people of no faith as well. 
Oh, he absolutely was. Um, you know, Sonny Fox is a dear friend of mine, and he um, lived an incredible life. You need to read up on, on Sonny Fox, uh, former NBC executive and, um, and, and, and TV star. But he, um, you know, he's, he, he didn't have a belief in, in God. He's a Jewish kid, grew up, but he's really kind of an agnostic, almost atheist kind of person. But he's deeply respected my father's faith. It's one of the first things he talked about, about my father. And, um, and, and dad respected him and, and dad respected, uh, uh, people of all faiths. I, I didn't know he had a Bible, but the only Bible in the camp was my father's. And I found that out from reading a diary from Frankie Serenzia, one of dad's best friends. Now Frankie passed away even before dad did. So, but I met his daughter, Lorna, we've become fast friends and, um, just reading in, in, uh, Frankie's diary about dad's Bible being used for all of those services and 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 the diff, the different faiths uh was such a great blessing um and dad it, it frankie very blatantly says uh roddy's reading his bible again today that's where he finds his strength that's where he finds his courage and i'm like wow i mean that it, dad was real he was the real he was he was a real sincere uh christian uh and uh i i don't know that uh, i, I kind of uh talk like, like like Paul Stern. I mean, I, I, I think of Paul Stern. Paul said, uh, for for a a person who had no reason to do what they did to stand up for us, um, he said, to me, that's a real Christian, a real Christian that puts their life on the line for others when they don't have to. Um, and, of course, we know of a verse, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Indeed, indeed. Let's talk a little bit about Yad Vashem. Because in the end, and by the way, that's the uh, Holocaust Museum in Israel. And uh, your dad becomes the first American GI to get the Righteous Among Nations Award. By the way, we were, we were tipped off to it by Ambassador Ron Dermer, who is uh, uh, the ambassador uh, uh, to the United States from Israel, and also Netanyahu's uh, speechwriter, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Talk about that award, because that really had to be something for your family and for all the people who knew what your dad did, and finally, my goodness, they too must have been really happy. Oh, they were, and you know that was a real surprise for us as a family. That I, I, let me just kind of back up to everything we've talked about is you know all that's been accomplished, God has done. Because uh, I didn't go pursuing to uh, to get dad awards. I didn't go pursuing to write a book. I mean, my my passion uh, was was to discover what happened to my father. Okay, and so I made that passion in prayer. Uh, obviously, there was perseverance and perspiration and all those kinds of things that, that take place. But um, the story really wrote itself. I, I think God wrote this story through my journey, uh, and it just unfolded. And so uh, I went back when I first heard the story from Lester in 2013. So most of the things in the book that I discovered about my father, I didn't discover until 2013. So that's, what, six years ago. So it's been a fast and furious journey. So I go back from that meeting in New York City. Um and hearing the story for the first time from Lester, because Lester, at the end of our, our conversation, said, I think your father's deserving of the Medal of Honor. What do you think? I said, I, I think so, too. So I went back to talk to my congressman. I, I met with Jimmy Duncan, my congressman, and then we met with uh, Senator Alexander, Senator Corker, and we all began a concerted effort to, to try to pursue the Medal of Honor. We spent a year and a half putting together all the, the information and all the testimonies and everything, affidavits that you have to have from 
to to pursue that medal because it's it's you know it's the greatest highest military award. Um, and in the meantime, a friend of Lester's, who, who's now one of my good friends, Larry Goldstein, was taking all that information to help in that process, but he was also sending it over to Yad Vashem and asking them to consider Dad as righteous. And he wanted to surprise me, and he did. Um, they, they looked at that information for over a year. Uh, they confirmed that it was true, and they uh, uh, awarded Dad in 20... Uh, they announced in 2015 when I was in Israel... And then in 2016, uh, January 27th of 2016, they had a ceremony at the Israeli embassy for the first time ever. And for the first time ever, a sitting president visited the embassy uh, on behalf of, to, to honor my father. So President Obama came to the ceremony. Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke live from Israel as well. Uh, lots of dignitaries and, and uh, leaders from around the world were there. Uh, Ambassador Dermer was the host. It was an incredible event. Three of the POWs were able to be there, which was fab- fabulous. Lester spoke. Um, Paul Stern was there from nearby Reston, Virginia. And then uh, Sonny Fox came all the way in from California, and he was there. Uh, it was, and, and what an honor. Uh, I, I don't know if there's a higher honor than to be named righteous. And, and Lester, at the end of his talk there that day, said this. He said, Roddy could no more have given over any of his men to the Nazis than he could stop breathing. He just couldn't do it. A righteous man. Indeed. And by the way, there's an insight here. By the way, he saved over 200 Jews. Yes. And over 1,000 more men with a remarkable maneuver later, uh, just a strategic and tactical maneuver about not having the guys march out of the camp and oh, just staying put. But they, I wanted, they revolted. Yeah, they yeah, revolted and they didn't revolted. march. But yeah. I wanted to leave you with this because the insight here is why your dad didn't want to share this story. In an age of Instagram, of people taking credit for things they didn't do, your father's humility was overwhelming. But I think this is where it might have strung from too, this quote. And it's what your dad wrote. I have made new friends and lost some. I don't know whether all of my boys are alive or not, but I pray that they are. It all seems sort of a bad dream. A very bad one. I have been overseas a little less than six months. I think your dad, in a large way, just wanted to put this behind him. Oh, he did. He did. And uh, and, and he went on to end that, that uh, quote from his diary. He went on and wrote, uh, you know, uh, I have a good idea of what, of what battle is. you got to be there to know. And uh, I st- as much as I know about my father's experience, I... I don't know his experience. I don't know these men's experience, but I do know this. I know that they are heroes, every one of them, more than heroes. And our way of life, they defended very well. And we live a blessed life today in the greatest country on the planet because of these men and all who served during World War II. And, and who even, even my, my wife's grandmother was a Rosie the Riveter, you know, all these people who jumped in and, 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 helped good win over evil uh, are more than heroes. Indeed, I want to close with a Lester Tanner quote, because Lester is the one that propelled this whole story. I love Lester. Lester's fantastic. And he said, the lesson of that day shaped my entire life. When I look back at all of it, all the years since that fateful day, I find many occasions in my personal, family, and professional life when I can link my decisions and actions to my service in the war into that experience when I watched Rodney, sta- Roddy, standing up to the Nazi major. 
I am still doing that now in my own way at the age of 90. Yeah, now he's 96, and he's still doing it. Well, Chris, thanks so much for the story. The book, No Surrender, A Father, A Son, and an Extraordinary Act of Heroism that Continues to Live On to Today. We're going to close out with, well, your dad's favorite gospel song, I Am a Private in the Army of the Lord, and the singer is your dad. The accompanist is his mom. Thanks so much, Chris. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories send them to ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org they're some of our favorites and now we visit the owner of a small pizza joint in downtown Oxford Mississippi who just so happens to be a local legend when it comes to music okay so this game that I have over in the corner is the original 1983 spy hunter and I played this game every summer at Myrtle Beach. I spent every dollar I had on this game. Most millennials come in and struggle because they don't realize there's a gas pedal. Now, if you go fast enough for, see how the, the, the counter at the top? If you go as fast as you can, you get two extra free men here at the end, and then that kind of puts you ahead of everyone else. I can tell if you're going to be able to beat my score just by the sound of the machine when you come in. That's why you just shouldn't stop, because see, now you can't get the free man, but you get the point. Uh, well, my name is Tate Moore. I own Square Pizza on the Square been there since 2007. One of the only businesses on the square that's still up here that survives without selling alcohol. And uh, they don't make it easy. And uh, I'm originally from southeastern Ohio. I came to Oxford in 92 as a freshman. The one thing I missed in Oxford was uh, the pizza that I grew up with, which is kind of a uh, southeastern Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania style slice. It's a, a thin, crispy, double-baked provolone cheese slice, and uh, it's cooked on a rolled steel pan. You know, it's double-baked, so it's a real unique slice. And I thought, man, I needed a real job around that time. I'd gotten married, and uh, I've been in the, uh, the music business. I started the Kudzu Kings in 94. I'm all out of champagne 
Uh, so I grew up in Caldwell, Ohio, which is between Marietta and Cambridge, Ohio. It's a real small, small town, and in, in where I'm from, they call it southeastern Ohio. When I, when I first came to Mississippi, people were always like, where are you from? You know, because you have an accent, but it's not our accent. And, you know, I still get that to this day. My mother is uh, Pam Moore, and my father is Chad Moore. My mom was from uh, Denver, Colorado, or actually I should say uh, Golden, Colorado. She used to always say that she dated Joe Kors. My brother was a big quarterback star in Caldwell, and my father was a big sports guy. I always say that he sent me off to boarding school because he didn't want me to uh, break my brother's records. Anyway, they said it was for a, a better education, which I did get. But I went to a boarding school called Wheeling, uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia, called Lindsley. It was like the Grand Old Opry. They'd have country music come in uh, every Friday and Saturday. The opening house act would always play every Friday and Saturday. And, uh, you know, I made like a little tape with that house band and... I grew up quick. My sister's boyfriend, Todd Duvall, used to come over and go out on dates with my sister. And we, my mom had a guitar, uh, an old little small Yamaha guitar that still plays great. And Todd would come over and play guitar, uh, and I'd watch, and uh, he ended up spending more time on his date with me playing guitar at the house than uh, he did going out with my sister. He don't come back home much anymore. His life ain't like it was before He's dates movie stars Drives the greatest, latest car He don't come back home much anymore When you call his phone, it doesn't ring He's got his mind on bigger, better things They used to always say He'll be a star someday When you call his phone, it doesn't ring Well, he wears confidence like a disguise He's always got his eye on the prize He's got the world on a string Nothing costs him anything he don't come back home much anymore If you ever find yourself his way You should probably go and see him play For his songs are sweet They'll knock you off your feet He don't come back home much anymore Well, his heart, it always beats to a melody He's always got a song for you or me Yes, you should see him play Before his memory fades Cause he don't come back home much anymore He don't come back home much anymore he don't come back home anymore. Beautiful, beautiful. And when we come back, we continue with Tate Moore. And we broadcast out of this small town just south of Memphis, Oxford, Mississippi. And sometimes we tell stories of the people in our own little town, too. 
More with Tate Moore's story here on Our American Story. Turn to the story of Tate Moore here on Our American Stories. He's the owner of a local pizza shop in Oxford, Mississippi, who started a southern rock band called the Kudzu Kings. And folks, all over this great country, there are people we know who maybe we don't quite know enough. And that's one of the main themes here on this show is the talent in this country. Well, it's everywhere. A lot of it's hidden. Now let's return to Tate Moore's story. I got a theater scholarship to Ole Miss, so it was nice to go to a school that wanted me. But once I got here, man, I found uh, a couple little bars, and I started playing acoustic by myself. And I had my brother's ID that said I was 22. So here I was, 18, in Oxford with a guitar and a PA system that I'd had since I was... Because, you know, I'd been playing little house party gigs since I was 15. Anyway, so I get to Oxford, and I did a little acoustic gig... One of my first big opportunities was uh, there was a bar called Lafayette's, which is now the middle room of the library. And uh, I opened up for a band called Beanland on Friday night. And uh, that went well. So I got to open up for David Allen Coe the next night on Saturday. And, uh, you know, I was ecstatic. So I'd been singing all these songs through high school. And anyway, I did learn I sang Tennessee Whiskey opening up for David Allen Coe. <laughs> and I remember him during his show as he went into Tennessee Whiskey. The young man before me tried to do this song. Uh, it goes like this here, or basically, something like that. And I remember thinking, oh, my God. And I thought it was a George Jones song. But uh, I learned don't ever sing the guy's song <laughs> that you're opening up for. So, lesson learned at 18 in 92 at Ole Miss. I classically destroy all original versions of any song that I do. <laughs> I, you know, I listen to it real quick, and then I learn the words, and then I go with it. The Kudzu Kings uh, used to play the song uh, Like a Rolling Stone. And uh, I remember George turned to me. Who George was in the, in the band Beanland uh, that I opened up for in 92. And he was like, man, uh, why do you do the, the version like that? <laughs> and I was like, well, I... I didn't know enough about guitar to know the other chords. So I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I do like how it originally goes. And now, you know, here I am 25 years later after being with the Kudzu Kings, and I do appreciate the way that the original stuff goes. You have to at least know how it goes before you change it. So kudzu is a green vine that just grows over everything. It grows a foot and a half a day. And uh, so, you know, if there's a telephone pole somewhere, it's going to be up the pole in uh, a week. Dave, who plays bass with the Kudzu Kings, um, I used to have a little yellow house over here on the square. And uh, he had this Volvo that sometimes worked, sometimes didn't. The Volvo was parked to the point where the Kudzu grew over the Volvo by the time he got it going again. 
my father was the guy behind kudzu. He said, he said, son, if you're going to be in a band in Mississippi, you need to use the word kudzu. And I told Max, who plays guitar with Kudzu Kings, I said, told him the story. And he just said, Kings, Almond Brothers, Kudzu Kings. And I think the name is part of why we've been able to last so long. It's a great name. <laughs> I was playing a, uh, a solo acoustic gig in a bar called Ireland's. And I'd been playing for a couple years. So in 94 is when... Uh, Dave started showing up. He uh, he had a stand-up bass. So he, you know, the next Tuesday he showed up, and then uh, he just kept showing up, and then he eventually brought Max. Max was in a band called the Mosquito Brothers, and they were uh, a meters cover band. I'm doing these country songs that I wrote that are really square, and then the next thing you know, the Mosquito Brothers all show up. They had lost their bass player and their singer, Dave and I were perfect. They started playing these country songs of mine, but they started playing them with this funk. And, uh, well, we just celebrated 25 years uh, last weekend. Congrats. Yeah, man, it's, it's a long time to be with the original. And last weekend was the original six. So uh, we've, had, uh, we've had drummers. Uh, we've had three or four drummers, but they've all been with us for over 20 years. And, it's funny that we've kind of cycled back to the original six. Well, you were such a good friend until you crossed that line. Oh, darling, oh, I recall all the real good times. Now it's just a mess because you never left and so. really don't know what to call us because we're doing original stuff um, but we really play kind of like the Grateful Dead so you know we'll sing a couple verses and then we've got three soloists so you know we'll stretch it out and then come back in with another verse maybe a bridge and another chorus and when you've played with people for that long too that's what's fun is everybody's like I'll get mad at somebody sometimes don't you remember when we did it like this back in 97 and they will they'll say oh yeah I do remember that <laughs> I'm telling you we we are playing better now than we ever played just because we're also you know we're older and we're all, we're all better at what we do uh, you know we listen more we certainly appreciate getting together and doing it now like we might only do four or five shows uh, a year now uh, and, you know, we're trying to get on the festival circuit right now or get back to the festival circuit. But, you know, as old guys, it's, it's tough to get out there because, uh, you know, I'm, I've done my day. I did like 15, 16 years in a 15-passenger van. Those, those days for me are over. I just don't want to do it. We got real lucky in 94 because uh, when George started playing with us, George was pretty much famous from a band called Beanland. And Beanland had a piano player that 
left Beanland and went to Widespread Panic. And Beanland and Widespread Panic were both kind of uh, competing in the same southern market in the late 80s. Uh, and when JoJo went to, to Panic, they just became this whole new machine. So Panic was really big in the mid-90s. And we knew JoJo, so he hooked us up. Man, we got to play, uh, we played Mud Island in 96 uh, with Widespread Panic. That just propelled us, you know, every bar that we wanted to play in the Southeast, we could now play. We played Red Rocks with them in 2000. Man, for me, it's as big as it ever got. And, And my mom being from Golden, you know, I grew up with my sister, you know, going to go see U2 at Red Rocks. And, man, and, you know, we just opened up. Uh, but it was a 45-minute set. And, man, it was a sold-out crowd on a Sunday. And uh, I w- once I started doing it, it was just amazing. You know, like, I, it, it was the moment where I was like, wow, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, it was like the pinnacle of like, wow, I can do this. You know, it's like everything's kind of small potatoes out there. And you've been listening to Tate Moore telling his story. He owns Square Pizza on the square here in Oxford, Mississippi. And we tell stories about everything here on the show. It's what we say every night. And sometimes we tell stories about people right here in our town. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, he said. About that day, that night, he opened up for a big band at the time, Widespread Panic, at Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado. And if you've never been to a show there, folks, just get there to see a show. It's one of the most beautiful venues in America. It is literally carved out of a mountain. The acoustics are great. The setting is great. And there's possibly not a better venue in America. And I know everyone's got their favorite. But for me, a Jersey boy living here in Oxford, Mississippi... I can say as someone who's been to a lot of shows all over the country, Red Rocks is one of the most beautiful. If you've got a story like this about someone in your town, about someone in your family, these don't have to be just the big stories about the big successes, the Merle Haggards and the, and the, and the big bands. Uh, no, there's, there's the smaller successes and the life's well lived, and we love telling those stories too. So send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, it just doesn't have to be music. It can be anything involved in the arts, a small business. Uh, something. Somebody started a church, and the church did great things. There are so many things we do with our lives that give to others and fulfill us. When we come back, more of Tate Moore and his story here on Our American Stories. Continue with the story of Tate Moore here on Our American Stories, a local pizza shop owner and founder of a band that became widely popular in the South during the 1990s called 
the Kudzu Kings. And by the way, if you've ever been down here and you see these green vines just about taking over everything on the side of a road, well, that's Kudzu. At their height, they opened for widespread panic at Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado. Let's continue with the final part of this story. After that day, I didn't, I didn't necessarily get nervous anymore. I get, I get a little nervous now just because we don't play as much. But when we were doing like 180 dates a year, I mean, the stage kind of felt like my living room, to be honest. It was like we could do in with the talent that I had around me. It was like, you know, we couldn't fail. You could, you know, you could go any direction and it would turn cool. What people don't realize is when 9-11 hit, it changed the market. Bars that used to, to pay bands a lot of money to come play, uh, they had slowly gotten into the DJ thing. And once they got to that point, they were like, well, I'm going to pay one guy 200 bucks and then charge everybody at the door and I'm going to take all the money. So by 2004, we were like, man, it wasn't worth it anymore. And I mean, as much as we loved playing, we knew that the idea of getting in a van and driving around it just wasn't as realistic. In 2000, after the Red Rock show, we did get an offer, basically. Do you guys want to go do it? And at the time, we thought we were doing a pretty good job by ourselves. You know, some guys in the band just, I don't want to say they weren't ready, but some, a couple had just gotten married, had a kid, thinking about doing something else. You know, it was just, I feel that when we told them no, a lot of doors got slammed on us for a whole, you know, a decade after that. So I think that's what made it tough from 2000 to 2004, just because people were like, well, we gave you a shot, and these guys said no. But, you know, we had three different agencies booking us. One would book us on the East Coast. We handled the bookings in the Southeast, and then we had somebody that handled booking in the Colorado market. So, I mean... We just, you know, we weren't looking at the big picture, in my opinion. You know, you got to give away some to, to get something. When I look at it now, I don't think we would, we would be as, as happy where we are now. I think we would have made it. I mean, I think we would have grinded it out. I mean, longevity is the key to this business. I still live the dream that we're going to get the lottery ticket. You know, I, I still think that we're going to do it. I certainly feel much better about myself because of, uh, you know, Square Pizza has been in business. It's, it's nice not to have to depend on the music business. And people have always said that we can't do it a certain way. But to be honest, because we've done it the way that we've done it, I now feel like we're going to be able to reap the rewards. There haven't been many middlemen. I think we just need, we need one thing to hit. And then... I want a bus to come pick me up at the house, get on it on a Thursday, go play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and come back, and then do that again in like a month. (laughs) You know, two months. Go sell three shows, and then come back home. And then go work three shows the other direction. And people say, well, that's not feasible to make that work. Well, I stare at these buses that pull outside the Lyric every day that I'm at the pizza shop. It's like my curse. I've always wanted to bus and to go out on a tour, which I never have. And now I stare at them every day across the street. But uh, 
you know, those are 3500 bucks a day. Now, we've had some opportunities where we've made good enough money to, to spend that. But everybody in the band's like, <laughs> let's, let's, make, let's make the 3500 bucks. <laughs> so, you know, it is what it is. Where I'm from, you know, they'll sprinkle a little cold cheese and even cold pepperonis on the slices. And I served a slice to a girl uh, last night and I put some cheese uh, on the top of it. And she came back and she was like, this cheese is cold. Um, can I have another slice? And uh, I mean, I just kind of, I looked at her and was like, well, I did that purposely, but sure, I'll get you another slice. So, I mean, I've had to kind of learn to give people ranch. I feel I have a really great sauce and people just ruin it by dipping it in ranch. But I mean, I can't tell you how to eat your slice. Well, I like to say that I charge you 25 cents for it, but you know, you then get, as people pull out their debit cards to pay for a 25 cent ranch, that's when I shake my head and I just give, them, give it to them. I've had to just live with it now. So I just, I mean, literally everybody wants ranch. For me, I think to get over, I've had to learn to just expect it. And uh, I'm not quite over it, but I'm, it's a, I'm a work in progress. What I love about Oxford is that it's still a small town, a big-time atmosphere. I mean, we get big-time sports, big-time music, big-time restaurants. Where I'm from in Ohio, I mean, they have nowhere to go. You know, they, they drive 45 minutes to a Cracker Barrel. In Oxford, you know, you can, be, you can be a big fish in a small pond here. What's magical about the place is I feel Elvis Presley could walk into this pizza shop and it wouldn't surprise me. Anybody that I've ever wanted to meet eventually shows up here. Every day I walk my dogs around this town Head in the clouds Staring at the ground I might walk by your place You might give a little weight In every house there is a story Just waiting to be told You got it in your heart Yeah, you got it in your soul Yeah, you got it in your heart You got it in your soul Yeah, my sister moved away nearly 30 years ago. She never looked back. She just knew she had to go. She's an actress now, always looking for the part. Well, I hope Hollywood, it doesn't break her heart. Oxford is a roller coaster. I have five months to make money. And the other seven, I try to, to not lose. And the way I do that is by being so small that when, uh, when Oxford shuts down and the kids leave town, man, I, I've got like two, three employees. And I'll just be like, man, let's everybody take a two-week vacation. And I can shut the doors and save money. Whereas uh, if I had more square footage, 
you know, people are dependent on you and you just, uh, there's money that you're going to lose in December and January. And it just, it gets easier every year because, <laughs> you know, it's coming. I love Bobby Charles. He was a piano player out of Louisiana. I love Mose Allison. I love Professor Longhair. Let's see, like, this is one of my songs in a, in a, in a long hair style. And you've been listening to Tate Moore, and there are so many stories like this across the country. Yeah, maybe not, you know, the U2s or the Bruce Springsteens, but so many local bands that did good and still get together and make some noise. Tate Moore's story here on Our American Story. we continue here with Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring segments, our American Dreamers series, which is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, and they're working hard in Washington, D.C. and state capitals across this country trying to work for policies that help small business owners become bigger business owners and get their part of the American dream. And now we bring you a powerful immigrant story. My name is Gladys Gonzalez, and I was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. My life hasn't been easy, and maybe because of that, I learned many lessons. I have learned that life can change from night to day, for better or for worse, like it happened to me when I was working in Colombia, and I was so happy there. I had a VP position for a bank with headquarters in New York at the time of the drug dealer's war. In 91, the first drug dealer had to come to the States in extradition. Our view is the right approach is to bring to justice narcotics traffickers to uh, coordinate and cooperate as best as we can with Colombia. The drug dealers said for every drug dealer that you send to the United States, we are gonna kill seven Americans or people that works for Americans. And at that point, the bank decided to close business in Colombia. I had been working for them already nine years. It was a night life. My salary was in dollars. So I had a very good life. I had time to share with my family. It was beautiful. But unfortunately, I had to leave the country 
So I decided to move to Utah. I really had a hard life in the United States at the beginning. I had this hope that because I was a executive in an American bank in Colombia, I will be able to get a good job soon here. But it didn't happen. I didn't have an MBA. I didn't have a title from United States, only from Colombia. So I ended up cleaning floors. And for that, I was very qualified. <laughs> I started from the very bottom of the ladder. I had three jobs at the same time. One of my jobs was taking care of people with disabilities. When I was finished with that job, I would go to my second job, that was to clean offices. Then I would go home to sleep for a couple of hours and get up the next day to start my routine again. On Saturdays, I had my third job, delivering bundles of newspapers to kids' carriers so they could drop the newspapers in their neighborhoods. I learned firsthand how hard the life of an immigrant could be. Many times I remember my kids telling me, Mom, what would have been worse for us to stay in our country facing the drug dealers and guerrilla war or moving to USA to face this tough life? And I will tell them, don't worry, we will make our way out of this someday. We just need to be patient. I got to the conclusion that only having a business, I will be able to succeed. And I started looking what type of business I could have that will help me to succeed. So I started by what is not available in Utah? And I thought, hmm. There is no a Hispanic newspaper here. So probably that's what I'm gonna do. So I just started the newspaper. And the first newspaper <laughs> took us a month to do it. So you can imagine how fresh the news were. Since the beginning, my dream was integration. So I decided, okay, we will have bilingual editorials. And so I thought, how can I make people start placing advertising? And I said, I need to get a couple of companies that are powerful here. So I went to visit with them and I told them, I will donate the full page in my newspaper. You don't have to pay me anything. But if you wanna outreach the Hispanic community, I will give you the ad for free, but you gave me the ad totally ready. And for them, it was a good deal. So they say, okay, let's do it.
My next challenge came when I didn't have cash flow. So I started thinking, okay, I will have to close the newspaper. And at that point, I visited with late Senator Pete Suazo. And I told him, I have to close the newspaper. And he told me, no, you cannot do that, Gladys. That's the voice of the community. So he told me, how much money do you need? And I said, $10,000 cash flow. So he told me, have you been rejected by any bank? And I said, yes. Do you have a letter? Yes, I do. And he said, well, that's all we need. There is an organization called Utah Microenterprise Loan. So we can apply with the letter of denial. You do a business plan and I'll help you to present to the committee. I got the loan and the day that I got the loan, I took a photocopy of the check and then at night, I wrote an outline of my vision of what will be a business center resource for minorities, where people will be able to get education, how to write a business plan, how to apply for loans. And at the same time, I will team up with banks to have source of capital available for them. In 2002, when Pizzuazo died, I decided that I wanted to honor his legacy and I asked an authorization to his family to use his name and to create the Suazo Center nonprofit. And we have served between seven and 8,000 companies since the inception of the center. One of those companies is actually a change of nine supermarkets. It is owned by a Mexican woman, and we helped her with the first little store. And later on, when she wanted to open the first big supermarket in a Latino mall, a team of eight people were helping her to create all the business plan. And she got a, a loan for 700,000. Today, she gives employment to over 500 people. For me, the American dream is not about what the government does for us or who is the president. For me, it is about contributing our talents to worthy causes. It's about alleviating the suffering of those in need. It's about being a valuable part of the country that is now our home. It's learning the language and not having fear of expressing ourselves, even if we have a strong accent. I consider myself that I have fully lived the American dream. I continue living the American dream. And you've been listening to Gladys Gonzalez, founder of the Suazo Center, which helps Hispanic entrepreneurs create their own American dream. And you can learn more about their work and support them 
at suazocenter.org. That's S-U-A-Z-O center.org. Gladys's story, so many immigrant stories. I know my grandfather's story, a pizzeria in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and my grandfather on the other side, Lebanese, an embroidery factory. Businesses help fuel the American dream for both of them. And both, by the way, struggled as immigrants. And it is no easy thing to move from another country to a new country, learn the language, oftentimes lose your credentials. Gladys was, a, was an executive at a bank and came to the country, and that expertise and experience just wasn't honored. And so she was cleaning floors, but with patience and with diligence, ended up living her own version of the American dream. A great immigrant story, Gladys Gonzalez's story, and a great American dreamer's story. Here on Our American Stories, and send your American Dreamer stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We know they're out there by the millions. Your American Dreamer stories, your family's story, your immigrant story, here to OurAmericanNetwork.org.